Uh, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you don't have to do that. Yeah, don't. Oh, no. Oh, no. I was, uh, the nuns have some vegetables ready to throw at me in case you guys, <laughs> in case you guys need something. Okay, well, thanks for uh, having me be here. Um, it's just going to be a really weird experience probably for everybody because you're like, who is this guy? Why is he here? Uh, why does he look so weird? But I'll try uh, my best to um, be of service to you. So let me just kind of give you a little bit of background, really, uh, on my end of who I am. Uh, so I am a uh, fallen, broken man who, uh, for a large portion of my life, um, was in the depths of utter hell. And um, it was only until uh, Christ came and really revealed uh, himself to me that I began any type of movement towards healing. So um, I could talk to you about my training. I could talk to you about my education. I can talk to you about the many incredible mentors I've had who, um, you know, one of them in particular, you know, I could name drop and all that stuff, but I don't really think that matters, to be honest with you, because anyone who's had any type of experience of needing healing and you've gone to a professional versus maybe someone who loved you, you can tell the difference. The professional may be able to give you information, maybe if you're lucky, give you some skills, but the person who loves you is actually the one who brought you to a place of healing. So what I'm gonna be speaking to you tonight is primarily all of my experience of being a healed person. And primarily out of my own experience of being someone who not only was alienated from God, but um, hostile towards God. And so it's important to realize that um, that same God that pulled me out of hell, it's the same God that bore witness to all the many atrocities that this world has seen. It's the same God that revealed, uh, same God that revealed himself to Moses, same God that was crucified on a cross. And so the same God loves all of us and desires for all of us to be healed but the problem is is us and that's the thing that everyone's missing we are the ones that get in the way speaking of getting in the way is there any way i can get a glass of water oh yeah be really good okay so um so with all that being said that's that's me but even more importantly than me right saint uh, john the baptist he said in the gospels you know I must decrease and he must increase. And so really I'm, I'm going to try to do my best to get out of the way and point you to my experience uh, with God and understanding that my experience is, is really couched and nestled in the life of, of my tradition. And so um, just out of curiosity, a little show of hands, who has never heard of uh, orthodoxy or the Orthodox Church? Never heard of it? Oh, so everybody's very familiar. So we don't have to go there. I don't know. Very. <laughs> okay, familiar enough? Okay, okay. Let me just, let me just give a little bit of context because I think it might help because um, when, I, when we go through the presentation everything, um, there's just going to be some assumptions on my end. Um, and I just want to kind of lay that out for you guys. So... Um, First thing is, um, Christianity and the, and the Christian church is, has been embodied, incarnated 
historically in the world since Pentecost, okay? Uh, the book of Acts, all that good stuff. And so that footprint is, you can see that footprint in history. And that footprint um, consistently up until this day always points back to um, the Orthodox tradition. Thank you. So the reason why I have to say all that is because this tradition um, is, is rich with many things, but the thing that's most rich with is um, the unknown and mystery. Orthodoxy understands that in order to really experience God, not, not necessarily talk about God or know God in the sense of, you know, uh, facts, but experience. This is only possible through mystery. Moreover, the only way to really know God to some degree is to know yourself. St. Athanasius the Great, a great uh, saint from uh, Alexandria, the African church, he said that God became man so that man could become God. God became man so that man could become God, small g, not capital. So what that means is God, who is completely holy, other, divine. God's whole desire is that the creation, that mankind, that human beings would be united with him and like him. But the problem is, again, is us. Okay, the problem is us. And so primarily one of the problems is like mystery. We don't like mystery. And one of the reasons why we don't like mystery is because we have this, you know, fascination with this thing called like idolatry. Right. And we need to understand that idolatry and we're, we're going to get into that idolatry is this thing that kind of keeps us in the way. So in many ways, this talk is going to be a talk, obviously, about mystery because this is your series. But there's going to be a lot of talk about idolatry because when, in my prayer, I was trying to understand how I can be of service to you guys. Um, and I think well, what I was led to was to maybe open your eyes to how idolatry is alive and real now um, for all of us, right? especially all of us in the West, all of us as Americans, you know. Um, and if we can maybe see that, then maybe with God's help, we can begin to move that aside so that we can see the true God and so that we can truly see ourselves. Because the thing with idolatry is we like to hide behind things, right? And we're going to get into all that, okay? So I kind of want to give, I want to start off then with this understanding with a couple housekeeping rules. Uh, number one, I'm really big on dialogue. It's kind of nice me being able to present something, but I don't really think that's important. Um, I lean more into if there's questions or there's something you don't understand, just raise your hand and stop because I'd rather engage with you than just necessarily give a presentation because, I mean, who cares about that? You could watch YouTube. So um, the, the second thing is, um, you know, uh, I'm going to start off with a little bit of <laughs> with a video, which is uh, how many of you remember The Onion? Does anybody remember The Onion? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good satire, but, but this is actually the highest theology, too, at the same time, the highest theology, okay? So, with God's help, let's begin. Okay. Very good. So, before you click, this video, as I said, some of you probably have already seen it, 
But I just have to give a warning, you know, there's a little bit of like, ah, like surprise and shock. So any of you who are sensitive to that, you know, hold on to your chairs and, you know, <laughs> delicate stuff. Buckle up. Buckle up. Tonight, something truly extraordinary. Oh, thank you. I've been afforded the divine privilege to sit down with, in an exclusive interview, our celestial creator, God. Thank you. God, thank you for Wow. 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 So on one hand, obvious good satire, right? But on the other hand, that's actually like very good theology. In fact, in many ways, that's better theology than most people who pay, you know, thirty to forty thousand dollars for a seminary education get. Because there's a big difference between reading about God, reading about mysticism and experiencing God and actually practicing mysticism and actually experiencing God in that light. Many people have an idea about God that I would submit to you, and hopefully I'll be able to prove my case by the end of the night, is actually fairly idolatrous. They've received an image of God, right? And I'm not talking about Old Testament Baal worshipers, right? I'm talking about people today, now. Um, maybe some of us in the room, where we, we have a God that is fashioned, that is safe. We have a God that in many ways is tame and more like a pet than the great creator. And so when you encounter this God, I will say from experience, um, in many ways, what you just saw is a lot closer to encountering God than people are comfortable with. And the reason why is not because God is some cruel, capricious tyrant that's looking to squash you for every little infraction you've done, but rather it's because God is holy and we don't know what holiness is. You see, we think we conflate holiness with quaintness. We think holiness means grandma's doily and the old Bible on the table. That's not what holiness is. In fact, if you read the Old Testament over and over again, including, you know, the Levitical laws, all these laws in there, they were about preparing the people of Israel to approach holiness, God's otherness. Now, before we get into that anymore, and we will, let's start from the beginning for us. The fall was a traumatic event that was induced by idolatry, led to division and ultimately death. This cycle is now repeated in the life of every human being. The fall. Do we remember the story of the fall? God created, right? Adam and Eve. And God places them in paradise. 
God says, I've created you. You are free to eat of all what you see, right? Enjoy, except for this tree. Now, here's where the problem begins. We think that God was just kind of like testing and being like, okay, I'm going to entrap you. Here's this one thing. Don't touch it. But really, I know you're going to touch it. (laughs) Right? The problem is, number one, we, big, we, we tend to read the scriptures, um, we tend to read the scriptures like we would a fairy tale. Okay. Um, or the other end of it, we tend to read the scriptures like it's your ninth grade history book. Both are wrong, actually. Right? Both are wrong. Um, we need to read the scriptures as a sacred text that enters, enters us into levels of meaning. Levels of meaning that build off of each other. Okay. So now, this whole portion here, I said, was induced by idolatry. Okay. God says, don't eat of the fruit of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. The fathers of the church, the, the, the elders of the church, those who have who've been given insight by the Holy Spirit to give us understanding into how we should experience and really expound on the scriptures. They give us this insight that God actually intended for us as human beings to eventually eat of that fruit, but it just wasn't time yet. Let me give you an example. I have eight children. My oldest is 20. My youngest is just uh, over a year. My 20-year-old, he has his own apartment. He has a job. He has a car. It's great. I can tell my 20-year-old, hey, I'm going to give you a chainsaw. I want you to cut that tree down. Can you help me? Okay, cool, Dad. Right? What would it look like if I went to my, I want to say something ridiculous, my one-year-old. Let's just say my eight-year-old. Here's a chainsaw, Moses. Right? Go cut that tree. All of you would look at me like I'm absolutely mad and irresponsible. Okay? So the problem isn't the chainsaw. What's the problem? Right? Moses isn't ready yet. Okay? But when he gets to the age of his older brother, if everything's right, he'll be able to handle the chainsaw. So one of the things that we begin to, we have to start understanding is that our approach to knowledge is idolatrous. The way we approach knowledge and knowing things, it's like an idol. And this idol is, always understand this about idolatry. Idolatry um, is taking the part of something and make it the whole. Right? And it gets, it gets in the way. So the idolatry of knowledge, of wanting to be like God without God. right? Wanting to be like God without God. Remember I quoted St. Athanasius the Great. God became man so man could become God. right? Wanting to be God without God. It's interesting because when you look at this, this is, a, this is a very old and ancient mosaic. right? It's like this depiction of Christ there in the garden. It's kind of like, huh? What's he doing there? right? Well, we'll get into that. But... What's under, what you need to understand, the reason what this should show you is that the God of the Old Testament and Christ, it's the same God. And there is an awareness of who we are and our weakness. God is fully aware of it. And God is doing everything he can to help us. But this cycle, it's not God's fault. It's ours. It's our fault. God is the one who's seeking to bring us out of this place of this cycle, this traumatic cycle. But we are the ones 
who are stuck. Should I just hit the space bar? Uh, yeah, I think so. That, that should do it. This is a quote from Dr. Stephen Muse, um, who's an incredible uh, therapist. Um, he's really groundbreaking in many ways, especially in the synergy of contemporary therapeutic practice, uh, as well as with, you know, uh, faith and, and spirituality. Okay, let me read this quote to you. He says, on the individual personal level, the core issue in post-traumatic stress is the inability of the soul to integrate the reality of particular experiences resulting in psychic numbing, hyperarousal, and repetitive intrusion of trauma in the form of unintegrated images, behaviors, feelings, physiological states, and interpersonal relationships. Now, let me unpack that before you before we go any further. We can read this now, especially in this environment where trauma is kind of like a buzzword and has been for uh, quite a few years. But let's be really clear about something. Um, trauma isn't a thing that kind of like exists of itself floating in the air. Trauma is what happens when people experience something and they cannot process it and integrate it into their person. Okay, the reason why I'm saying that is because, and we're going to get into this, remember idolatry is always lurking. And so what happens is, is if you begin to understand this, then it kind of removes some of the kind of particular, or I will say, um, maybe scandalous to some of you, almost privileged place that trauma can hold now. Every human being will experience trauma. The question is, are they equipped to process that experience? It's very important because human existence from the time of the fall is ultimately traumatic is what I'm trying to show you. Something happened at the fall. A division happened. There was a division between God and, and humans, right? There was a division between humans and the created world, right? Animals, the plant kingdom, right? Matter, right? There was a division between man and the spiritual realm because we live, the, the world is inundated with, with spiritual beings, just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there, okay? But more importantly, man was separated within himself. Man was separated within himself. None of you function the way you're supposed to. I don't function the way I was intended to, right? Everything's been inverted, twisted, and then the life we live compounds that twisting, okay? God created us to operate in an order, in a hierarchy, right? Spirit soul, body, but in the fall, it all gets flipped. And now most people are operating body primarily, little bit of soul, right? Maybe some spirit. Maybe. Maybe. The soul is where the realm of your emotions lay. It's not your, it's not your spirit, actually, right? This is why we can talk about kind of animals having a little bit of a soul, right? Because... You know, my dog, Bane, a beautiful brindle pit bull, right? Ah, he's got feelings. So I could even say, yeah, Bane's got a little bit of soul. But he doesn't have a spirit, not like you do, not like I do. It's different. It's different, okay? And this is important to understand because the division within us is particular to us. Animals don't deal with the kind of identity issues that we do. Bane isn't like, well, am I a rabbit today? What happened to me? 
right? But all of us, because of what's happened to us, and all of us have experienced something that gives us the potential to be fragmented even further within us. This is what we're dealing with, okay? So, the experience of helplessness at the core is a kind of biochemical fixative that stabilizes traumatic stress in the autonomic nervous system, like a photograph that doesn't change, so long as the victims are voiceless and the community refuses to see any alternative. Shame and the attack on the character resulting from helplessness in the face of victimization dismembers a person, okay? Dismembers a person, not in the sense of obviously like their physical body, but it begins to dismember their inner faculties. This is why people who are stuck in traumatic responses, they don't function like the quote unquote majority of other people do because that traumatic response has caused their soul to be divided even more. But again, we are all in the same boat. Just some people's boat is a little bit more, uh, shall we say, weather-worn than others, okay? So, silence of the community in the face of victimization of a person or a people, in effect, demoralizes or discourages them. By attacking at its root, their sense of belovedness, cutting them off from self, others, and God, in the depths of the heart, which is frozen in mute helplessness, right? This dismemberment is the spiritual core of the injury, invoking despair. Despair. This is probably the biggest disease people are are suffering from now. It's absolute despair. People have no hope. They feel hopeless, okay? The most dangerous of the so-called deadly sins. Because it paralyzes the freedom of choice, the place of personhood from which the active encouragement, hope, faith, and love arises. See, this is really important because one of the things you'll hear about these, uh, do you guys know when, I'm, when I say theotic? Do you guys know what I'm talking about when I say theodicy? Does anybody not know what I'm saying? Very good. So there is this kind of like theological issue or question or conundrum of theodicy. Why does God allow evil? Okay. And people scratch their heads, they bang their heads for years, and they just can't answer it. And it's a very simple question. But the reason why people don't want the answer is because it puts it back in the seat of responsibility for us. The reason why God allows freedom, excuse me, uh, evil is because of freedom. Freedom. This is why um, issues of like Calvinism and Pelagism, all that stuff, the ancient church never dealt with it. Because the ancient church experience of God and of being human understands that freedom is this motivating factor in existence. We're created free. It's a limited freedom, but that freedom, that's the problem, okay? Remember the chainsaw? Yeah? Okay. So that freedom is the chainsaw, right? And there's a process in which maturity must happen so you can wield the chainsaw properly. But most people go like, no, give me the chainsaw now, right? And what happens if I give my nine-year-old boy a chainsaw, right? Yeah. So the silence that he was talking about in regards of a community, right? And that silence can make the situation even worse. I'm sure we all have kind of ideas of what that would look like. Some of them may be true, but I'm going to actually present to you 
something about silence and how that silence can really destroy a, a person or a community, right? But let me interrupt for a moment because I want to talk to you about a little bit more about idolatry. Because in order to understand how this silence can become problematic, you need to understand this concept a little bit more of idolatry, okay? When we talk about idolatry, most of you, if we're going to, let's just, you know, how many of you, when I started talking about idolatry, was thinking something like this? Raise your hand. Yeah? Some of you? Okay. Really, this is the idolatry. Now, right? This is the golden calf of me, wanting approval, ego, right? Possessions, all these things, whether it's social media, sex, drugs, it's all pointing back to me, the idol of me, okay? This idolatry is what's destroying people. It's what's causing people to be further fragmented, not just from with each other, but actually within themselves, right? Now, The question, of course, is, has identity become an idol? Has our trauma become an idol? Have we taken the traumatic experiences that we've all had to a greater or lesser degree, and has it become the thing that we look to to make sense of life? Or do we look to God to make sense of life? Do we look to the cross, which is the connection between us and God, the vertical, and us and our fellow man, which is the horizontal. That's what the cross is. The cross is this place in which I begin to lose myself for the sake of love. Love of God and love of neighbor. It's Ten Commandments. It's the golden rule. It's what Christ preached, right? It is the ultimate antidote to idolatry. But for many of us, right, it's an interesting paradox, but our ego keeps us entrenched in wanting to have this idol of self, and it is further dismembering us, okay? So what I'm suggesting to you is perhaps we should begin to reframe our ideas of God, reframe our ideas of identity and self, and not reframe it to look for something new, but I would submit to you, reframe it so that we can see what's always been there, who has always been there. So, in order to really get into this mystery of God then, right, I need to give you a couple technical terms. And this is, uh, you know, I'll point back to Nick on this. I'll blame him for this one. He talked a little bit and he's like, he would like for you guys as his community to kind of understand this concept, you know, and it's good, right? Um, I'm saving you guys, you know, $25,000, $30,000, right? I'm going to teach you some, some education and seminary and it's, it's safe, okay? So, there's these terms, these theological terms, apophatic and cataphatic, apophatic and cataphatic, right? And essentially, these are the ways in which we can, excuse me, kind of like begin to approach and speak about God, okay? One is positive, not positive like happy, but positive as an adding to. One is negative, negation, right? Like pulling away, right? So apophatic is, is saying... Um, trying to approach God by understanding what he is not. And the reason for that is because God is uncreated. There, there is nothing in creation that can really approximate God because God alone is uncreated, the divine, right? Okay, simple, right? You guys are all, you guys get it, right? Cataphatic is kind of how most of us function, right? 
And this latter is important because if you begin to understand that apophatic kind of works in this way, apophatic has to be done through experience, right? Because there really are no words that can define God, right? There's just, it isn't. It will always come up short because the second you say, oh, this is what God is, you've missed it. And really you've begun to make an idol, okay? So here's the thing, right? Cataphatic has its place because we need symbol. We, we need to have something tangible because of who we are. But I just want to show you guys something, right? We say, oh, God is love. Okay? Yes, but here's the problem. How do you define love? Because some people define love as like, hey, did you buy me a cheeseburger? Hey, do you tell me things that I want to hear? Right? Is that love? God is good. Okay. How do you define good? How do you define good? Do you find good as, you know, God giving you what you want? One of the things in our tradition, which is really, let me tell you the story. There was an old woman, an old yaya. And she's at church. She's crying and crying and crying, 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 crying. The priest comes in. He's like, oh, what's wrong with you? Why are you crying? She's like, it's been seven years, and I've had no tribulations, no suffering, no problems. Why has God forgotten me? That's real theology, and that's real experience, because, right, people conflate the good with pleasure. I'll tell you a little secret. The light, capital T, capital L, travels through sickness and grief. Right? The bad darkness, because there's a good darkness, we're going to get into that, right? I'd like to think I'm like, you know, but <laughs> bad darkness, right? That seductive darkness, it travels through pleasure and, and, and the self. It's seductive. Okay? So, cataphatic can work. But really, if you're looking for God, it has to be the experience. You have to experience love. You have to experience goodness. Because our definitions, not only do they pale in comparison, they're oftentimes corrupted. They're oftentimes corrupted. Now, one last word on the cataphatic. We experience those primarily through what we would call theophanies. Theophanies. I'll give you a great example of theophany. Christ and his baptism in the scriptures, right? That's theophany, right? Christ is baptized. They hear a a voice like thunder, the voice of the Father. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, right? The Trinity is, is manifested, theophany. That's an example, right? God reveals these things to us in, in, in tangible ways, right? But there's still more to who God is, okay? So, with this kind of understanding, we're going we're gonna to dive a little bit into this idea of the darkness of the divine, the kind of meat of tonight, right? Before I do that, I want to show you guys a little bit of, right? You guys are probably all familiar with this kind of concept. Very much so, right? This is every human being. Every human being, right? Our behaviors and our appetites are the things that are showing. But the reality of what's going on underneath that's where we find God. 
And that's why the other, the kind of subtitle is like the hidden heart of God. Every human being is made with, made in the image of God. Every human being, every human being, every one of you and everybody in Folsom prison, they're all made in the image. We are all made in the image of God. But that image is hidden underneath an incredible amount of depth. And I don't mean depth as in like good poetry. I mean hidden underneath brokenness, traumas, fears, all of these things. And it becomes very difficult to see that image of God. Now, part of the problem is, is because of these things here, right, we assume that this is how I find myself. But I would submit to you, and God, I would say, speaking through the history of the church and all that stuff would say that's actually not really who you are not really where you find yourself and in fact this is this is shall we say misleading the real you is down in here but the problem is is we don't want to go there remember the video i showed remember his response right we oftentimes we are so frightened to go there because we think this experience of God will be like that. And perhaps maybe without the right training, without the right understanding, it is. Um, I had asked Nick about some of the things, you know, what to talk about in regards of encountering the, the mystical. And he said that your previous speaker kind of went through all the nuts and bolts. So I trust in that. I trust that you guys talked about you know, mysticism is not something to play with, quote unquote. I'm sure he talked to you about purity. I'm sure he talked to you about, you know, sobriety. I'm sure he talked to you about the things that are necessary to prepare yourself to encounter the divine. Right? He did? You guys are all equipped for that or no? Because if you want me to take a couple minutes, I will. Because I just want to say this. If you're content with having a God that you can hold in your hand, that you can wind up and you can tell God what to do, when to do it, how to do it, then that's fine. But if you want to encounter the God that holds all things, all things, then I just want to encourage you to understand who you're encountering. Because mysticism, quote unquote, is serious business. I know I'm like bringing it heavy. I know you guys are like, man, what is this, you know? But I, I, I just want to share with you because that heaviness is important because isn't what you've gone through, isn't what the people that you're asking justice for, isn't what they've gone through real? Isn't it heavy, right? Or is it something that we just kind of hold up to make ourselves feel good? Oh, we love justice. Okay, well... If you love justice, are you willing to stand in the mirror and see the horror in which you've participated in that injustice? Yeah. See, this is the thing that, I, that idol. We want to put something out there to say, look, I'm good. I'm moral. No, I don't do this. I don't do that. That's those other people. No, that's you. That's me. And if we don't learn the processes to face that, then when we encounter God, we fall apart. Exodus 20, 
This is the chapter where the Ten Commandments were given. Context, right? And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. No, 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 Moses. You go talk with God. We don't want to deal with him. Right? And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. The people wanted nothing to do with it. But Moses, he pressed in. He pressed into that darkness. And that darkness is where he found God. St. Gregory Nisa, a true mystic. True mystic. St. Gregory says, Scripture teaches that religious knowledge comes at first to those who receive it as light. But as the mind progresses, and through an even greater and more perfect diligence, comes to apprehend reality. And as it approaches more nearly to contemplation, it sees more clearly what of the divine nature is uncontemplated. Stop. Okay. Let's just be really clear about something, because you guys don't know this. I'm going to tell you. When you hear this quote, you can just think that St. Gregory, like all of these other, you know, uh, early Christian mystics, that they're just reading books. They are not just reading books. In fact, all of them without fail, all the true deep ones, they were all ascetics. Every single one of them. Who does not know what I mean when I say ascetic? Okay. An ascetic is one who engages his contemplative uh, faculties by the disengagement of his body. So in other words, they will endeavor in certain practices to deny their body, their senses, certain things, so that their their contemplative faculty, which we call the noose, can grow. So in other words, they will fast, right? They will live uncomfortably. They will go without sleep. They'll pray long hours. They will do incredible works of charity and alms. They will do these things to deny themselves, not because the body is bad, because the body is very good, right? But they deny themselves so they can find something so much better, right? So in our tradition, we fast every Wednesday and Friday. Everyone does, not just those of us who are robed in black. Everybody does, right? According to their strength, right? You know, if they're like have diabetes or something, we work something out. But it's just the tradition. And if you read history, Christians have always fasted from Wednesdays and Fridays. It's just it's an old tradition, right? Now, the reason for that is because Christ was betrayed on Wednesday and his crucifixion on Friday. But the thing is, is cheeseburgers are good, right? We don't eat meat or dairy on those days, right? And we don't eat meat and dairy during Lent. I'm sure you guys have heard Lent. Like, we don't do Lent, right? Nativity, whatever, these long periods of fasting. I love cheeseburgers, clearly, (laughs) right? But I actually embrace cheeseburgers more by saying no to them, right? 
I have eight children. Clearly, <laughs> clearly I enjoy my marriage with my wife, right? But we say no to those things, not because the body is bad, but because that's the period of time in which we go and press on to something higher, or should I say someone higher? Because it's very difficult, number one, to focus on the subtleties of spiritual life if you are just inundated. And we all know how much, um, shall we say, not just social media, but just the goodness of a cheeseburger can just kind of like steal you away, right? It's very difficult, right? So understand what we're talking about here isn't just thinking and reading books, but actually engaging the whole person to encounter God, okay? So getting back to it. For leaving everything that is observed, not only what sense comprehends, but also what the intelligence thinks it sees, thinks it sees, right? Not actually what is, but thinks it sees. It keeps on penetrating deeper until by the intelligence's yearning for understanding, it gains access to the invisible and incomprehensible. And there it sees God. But it moves to this place where it's gone beyond its own understanding. This is important because, guys, your understanding, even if it's good, is still pretty much like an idol, right? Remember we talked about good. Your idea of good, it may be okay, but there's still some aspect of it that's limited, that's corrupted. God, when we talk about God being good, is just beyond that. And we believe and we experience that that can actually be accessed, that you can actually encounter that God in the unknown. When therefore Moses grew in knowledge, he declared that he had seen God in the darkness. That is, that he had then come to know that what is divine is beyond all knowledge and comprehension. All knowledge and comprehension. The darkness of the divine, the hidden. Vladimir Lofsky, an incredible theologian, modern theologian, modern theologian, he says, if in seeing God one could know what one sees then one has not seen God in himself, right? As long as you say like, oh, this is that, it's like, no, it's not, because you have now put God in that box, right? But something intelligible, something which is inferior to him, it is by unknowing that one may know him who is above every possible object of knowledge. By progressively setting aside all that can be known in order to draw near to the unknown in the darkness of absolute ignorance. This is the only time ignorance is good. This is the only time ignorance is really blessed because it's an ignorance that is only, it's an ignorance that is necessary because again, the trick is the second that you form something, you say, oh, this is God, you've missed it. So there's a, there's a maintenance of ignorance and this is a big part of mystical practice is to keep you in this state of humility. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Right. For even as light and especially abundance of light renders darkness invisible, even so the knowledge of created things and especially here's the idol excess of knowledge. Right. Bestowing the ignorance, which is the only way by which God can attain, excuse me, by which one can attain to God and himself. Most people conflate information with knowledge. They're not the same thing. Most people think they have knowledge. They don't. They have a bunch of information, especially now, because you and we've all been conditioned through um, the technology of now, and it's beginning to rewire all of us to actually 
take information on a very superficial level, right? But the problem with it is, is we aren't turning it into knowledge. Information can only become knowledge through experience. Remember we talked about experience in that apophatic? That's the only way. You don't know love if you're reading about it. You only know it if you experience it, right? And the thing with, oh, I read about it, I saw it on TV, I mimic it, that's not, that's not knowledge, right? It's just information. It's as, worth, it's, as, <laughs> it's as worthless as just digital, right? It's worthless. It doesn't really do anything for you. So, in Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, Christ. All this talk that I've just spoken to you about the fall and how the fall causes this fracture and it puts us in this cycle in which we are divided from ourselves and we begin to grow up onto anything, any type of identity to say, oh, this is who God is and this is who I am, right? And the cycle never satisfies and we just keep tumbling, tumbling and tumbling. And then I spoke to you about this reality that God actually is seen and revealed in ignorance, seen and revealed paradoxically in darkness, right? Okay, this is good. But then I come and bring you to this. You're like, what? Huh? This is why Christ is God. This is why the revelation of who Christ is is so amazing. And for us in the modern age, because everyone's inoculated and you think you know who Christ is, you go like, oh, no. Bring me more of that uh, tantalizing mysticism. Bring me that God that I can't see. You don't get it. God loves you. God loves you enough that God condescended in such a way that you could encounter God. Right? God became man so that man could become God. God, right? Christ thought it not robbery to make equal with the Father. What does that mean? What it means is the source, capital T, capital S, this unknown one, this one that is found only in the darkness, right? Loves his creation so much, he's like, I will become like one of them. In all their weaknesses, in all their ignorance, in all their brokenness, I'll unite myself to them. That's love. And that hiddenness, that God, that is hidden, right? He's still hidden. But Christ has shown us a way to get into that darkness. And it's through the cross. The cross and the rejecting of yourself, the rejecting of everything that you think you are, whatever identity you think you have. I'm wealthy, I'm poor, I'm a victim, I'm an abuser. All of these things, we're all guilty of everything. That's, that's the great secret. In the image of man is both greatness and much evil in all of us. And judgment is left only to Christ. When we begin to judge each other, we begin to judge each other on these idols that we've put up, right? I'm black, you're white, I'm this, I'm that. We begin to go further and further away from that unifying principle, which is God. God, Christ, in his suffering, reveals to us the big secret that everyone was looking for. And that is love. What love really is. Not the love that's there to assuage and, and make us feel better, 
but the love that's there to make us whole again. And even more importantly, once we're made whole, to make us holy. Holy, I'm not talking about a moral system. I'm talking about morality. Morality changes. What was moral 150 years ago isn't moral now. This isn't about morality. It isn't about ideology. It's about personhood. God is person. God is this incredible antinomy. Do you know what I mean? But an antinomy, right? These points that never touch but are increasingly growing together. God is singular, but yet plural. God is one, but yet three. God is love, but what is love? These mysteries and this thing that like that unresolved those of you who are musicians, you don't know I mean by like that kind of unresolved um, mode sometimes, you know what I'm talking about? You can get to this place where it's like, you feel like it, it, it's, okay, I'm singing a song, and it should end right here. But some modes, they don't resolve really, especially to the Western ear. It makes you feel like, oh, it should end here, but it doesn't, right? That is given in many ways as an example of what it's like to be in love with God, right? There's this forever thirst that we'll have, and it's a good thirst, going deeper and deeper. But we can only do that when we say no to ourselves. When we say, let me look inward into that darkness, right? That's here. And then when we do that, experience is born that that's where we truly find God. And that's where you find holy people that have done amazing things in this world, that have brought healing, that have brought wisdom, that have brought joy, that speak words of peace, true peace, right? They were able to do that only by looking at themselves first and saying, no, 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 you're not my enemy just because you're oppressing me. Actually, I see myself in you. You don't defeat hate by hate. You can only defeat it by love. And you don't heal from trauma by making trauma the idol. You can only be healed from trauma by finding the source, the prototype of what it means to be whole. That's the only way. That's the only way. God wants to lead all of us into that place, but it's, it's deep down. But the thing is, is God is patient and he's willing and he's always been there deep down in that darkness and he wants us to press in. That pressing in is where we find healing. So that's the deep mysticism as I've experienced it. That's it. Any questions? <laughs> okay, so, so I think I think of trauma as being a bad thing. I guess I just never thought of um, bad things being able to be idols. Of course. Can you expand a little more on bad things? Sure. Idols? Sure. Well, let's say. Um, oh, I got a good one, right? I'm a white supremacist. And I've taken my ethnicity and I've said, this is the source of all good and meaning. This is how I understand what it means to be alive and a human, right? And I feel that this identity is um, not only so good and, and ideal, it's also threatened, right? 
So I'm willing to do anything I can to defend that identity, right? So I will enact, you know, acts of violence for that, okay? Well, for that person, those are all good things, right? But if you're on the, on the bad receiving end of that, that's not good, right? But that's an idol. That person has said, this is, in essence, that's that person's God, right? But let's flip that, right? Another way that it can be negative. Well, I'm a young lady and, you know, my mom had been putting me out for prostitution since I was a kid. That happens, all right? I'm a prostitute. I've always been a prostitute. I'm 25. I've been turning tricks since I was 12. That's just what I am, right? That's, that's an idol, right? Because this is how I make sense of, of my life, right? None of it's good. I've been abused. I've been beaten on this and that, but that's what makes sense, right? I look to that to get understanding, right? Even that understanding is self-destructive. Like, that's the point. It's self-destructive, right? Reading in the Old Testament and, like, all the idols, like Baal and all that good stuff, like, it wasn't good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Baal didn't do anything good for, for the, the worshipers of Baal. But it was still, like, this is how, like, this is the ultimate meaning. Are you following me? Yeah, so, like, putting, you can put your identity in your past and, like, the bad things that have happened to you as opposed to putting your identity in God. Yeah, I, yeah, and, and I would say... Not only you can, but like I'm saying most people do. Most, most people do. They don't, they don't see that they're doing it. They wouldn't look at it that way. They would, if I would say that to me, like, you're crazy. I hate my trauma. I hate my whatever. But the second you say my trauma, I go like, see, that's part of the problem. It's not like it's a thing in of itself. It's your experience. And how are you understanding your experience, right? Yeah. And that experience... It can and should be understood in the light of what it means to be a human being and what human beings experience. And, and the only way to really understand that is, is through God. Because here's, here's one of the presuppositions that people aren't really figuring. It's almost like, well, I can believe in God or not. I, I'm just going to tell you, it's, God's not contingent upon whether you believe in, in God or not. God exists. God is. But our tendency towards idolatry and autonomy, right? We take our freedom, our autonomous freedom as human beings, and it becomes an idol. That in itself is an idol. And, it, and that in itself sends us spurling, like hurling downwards. One of the things that people get twisted is that God isn't dangling life like, like a carrot in front of a donkey. It's not like we're the donkey and God's got this carrot called life. He's like, okay, no, no, no. Well, you, what we don't understand, and this is where mysticism comes into play, God is, period. God, like, there is no goodness, no life, there's nothing, there is no goodness or life outside of God. Any experience of true goodness is an, an encounter with God. That's what people don't understand, right? And much of mystical understanding and practice now should actually lead a modern person to realize that nothing in their life is mundane. Everything is sacred. But because of idolatry, we don't look at it that way. Because idolatry, that's just a big burger, and I'm just going to eat it. And that's where people become gluttons. 
because that's no longer something that has been created and given to me to experience and to bring nutrients. It's something just to kind of assuage my anxiety. So I'm going to overeat. That's what people do. I'm going to drink too much, right? I'm going to go do whatever, right? It's an idol. Instead of being a means by which blessing comes. You're seeing me, right? We are meant to be. It says in Peter, you are a real nation of priests, right? Like priesthood, the, the, the essence of priesthood is, is offering, right? And so not everyone's a priest, sacramentally speaking, right? But all believers are meant and called to be in that priesthood of offering their life to God, right? Does that answer your question, kind of? Yeah, definitely. Great. Yeah, thank you. Yes, sir. This is going to seem a bit like an like unknowable question. What happens to the man in the onion video, in your head canon? What happens to him? He experiences God, and is he consumed? well well in our tradition what happens when you see god and in our tradition um and i guess i didn't have to make limit to our tradition because like um yeah we we have um that's what the saints are that's who our elders are and and our elders aren't just people from a long time ago we have elders now living who see God. They see God in the uncreated light. And when people encounter God, they become truly themselves. Um, I, I'm just going to open it up just to kind of answer your question so it isn't so much of a platitude, right? Um, but I, I'm sure there's people of, you know, uh, uh, plural of faiths here, right? So we're just, let's, let's kind of like, step out of the kind of open table thing real quick, and let's just step into a comparative religion class. Let's just look at it academically, right? So I'm just talking facts, right? Not about a personal preference, right? But just getting into like theology, right? If you want to, I think I might answer your question better, okay? So in that video, what happens to that man actually, the resolution of that, the resolution of that scene, you know, not the resolution like the pixels, but like the resolve, right? That's not actually a Christian understanding, right? It's not a one-from-one, one, right? That would be more particular in what you would find in like a Vedic understanding, where God is in kind of this impersonal thing, and you just become absorbed in, in that. That is not the Christian understanding of God. It's not in the scriptures. It's not in the history of the tradition of, of Christianity, right? Rather, uh, what's your name? I'm Garrett. Garrett. So the idea is when you begin to see God, um, there is a purification that happens. The process of salvation is purification, illumination, and deification. So there is a purification that happens, and that's a burning away of all those things, which is really getting back to It's a great question. It's like you gave me a softball pitch, right? Hopefully I'll hit a home run because it's the identity that gets burned off, the false identity. Your true identity is only revealed in the light of purification. So what happens to that man in our tradition? He becomes the true him and he's given a name that only God knows. And who he was always meant to be is now revealed and possible. Because everything his whole life without God has been about putting on masks, 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 right? And God's like, nope, 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 nope. And this is why we're in <laughs> modern man, we're in real bad shape. People aren't getting closer to God. They're not getting greater understanding. It's getting worse, actually. Because 
most people don't understand. And I think this is the thing I was, I was sent to maybe tell you. You may reject it or not. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I don't know if your house and your Harley Davidson is a blessing from God. Yeah? But your cancer is. Your cancer is. Let me tell you a story. Uh, I was like, I don't even remember. It's kind of fuzzy because she's dead. And I don't really talk to my older sister. My other sister's dead. So I, I don't really know. But I, th- I want to say I was like, how old is Moses? Nine? He's like nine, ten, whatever. It's like around my, my wow, he's like my fourth kid, fifth kid, whatever. So <laughs> I have so many of them. So around nine, ten, eleven, something like that, uh, I didn't get picked up from school which I'd, I'd gotten picked up from school my whole life until like six o'clock. It was dark at night. My neighbor came and got me, not my mom, not my dad, not my sister, and didn't say anything to me. I come home and there's ambulances and stuff like that from my house. What happened? Well, my mom had multiple aneurysms. And my mom from that point on was uh, blind and crippled. Right. Dad had to like, put up the house and the businesses. We lost the businesses, lost the house, went from the house to a townhouse, from townhouse to an apartment, apartment to sleeping in my Volvo, whatever, right? The, over years, over years, right? To everyone else, oh, what a tragedy. Yeah, it was a tragedy for sure. It's the best thing that happened. My mom found God. I found God through that. My dad found God through that. If this life is transitory, which it is, every single one of you are going to die, then what? Do you think that your experiences, I don't want to like put them down, but that really good food and that good ride and that, you know, two hours of playing video games, do you think that that's eternal? The lessons we learn from suffering and grief if our minds are looking towards, you know, the one who's hidden in the darkness, right? Those things become eternal. That's where we are purified. And that purification, that's the only way to encounter a true illumination. Because when illumination comes without that purification, it's just vanity. That's why you have so many people who are quote-unquote religious, gurus, pastors, all this and that, and they don't, they don't help anyone. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. They don't help anyone. Why? Because they have no experience themselves of being healed. They have no experience themselves of encountering the dark one, the one who's hidden in the darkness. Because they think that the sign of him being with you, you got money, you got a car, you got this, you got that. No. No. Remember that grandma who said, it's been seven years and I've had no suffering. Why has God abandoned me? It's a complete paradigm shift. Right? The Apostle John, he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Did that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the pitch, baby. Been, have there been really like large moments mm-hmm. for you 
And if so, like, what have those larger moments like felt like? You know, what kind of what does that evoke for you? What is that? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes to all of it, right? Both. Um, it's always incremental. And the reason why it's always incremental is because we can't handle it. And so um, part of the reason why I wanted the nuns here is because this experience isn't something far off in foreign lands that people um, kind of like only read about, you know, it happens now. There are people even now who get this taste of that divine and they say, yes. And they want with everything in them to pursue that. But they learn, they know it's a painful experience, right? The problem is you hear pain, you think negative right? But if you want to get jacked, if you want to get ripped, you know, lifting weights is painful, right? Rehearsing music and getting calluses is painful. It takes time, right? But you do that in order to engage and encounter something, right? So it has to be incremental because this is where that video is accurate. When you begin to encounter God without like less and less idolatry, right? When you begin to count to yourself with less and less identity and all the and all the masks, what begins to happen is it's a painful experience. So you have to learn to train yourself to not run and shy away from the pain, but actually to embrace it. Those who are on that path, they learn to embrace that pain to a larger degree than most people. They're not better per se, but they've said. I want God. I don't want a God of my own making. I want God. So they have to learn to grow in their ability to endure suffering and to allow that suffering to be transfigured into knowledge and into grace. So, yes, it's been incremental. And have I had huge, you know, kind of like big blocks? Yeah, but they've come through pain. (laughs) They've come through suffering. They've come through me saying, I'm not going to let go of you no matter what. Does that answer your question? Kind of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, partially. Sure, what are you really looking for? I hate platitudes, so. Well, I, I'm, I'm interested in that, like, that part of, like, what it's like, you know, an experience, like, going through that, like, because you talk about suffering, and, Sure. As opposed to just, you know, suffering. Because obviously we've all gone through a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Not everybody experiences that and it feels like God. So, you know, how is that for you differently? Well, it's part of the reason why a person finds himself in a tradition. Because that tradition lays out a map by which you can say, okay, here's this marker here, right? Oh, okay, right? Um, because I think what you might be looking for maybe some uh, particular like experiences or feelings that I would try to articulate maybe. But I would say to you, I don't want to do that because I don't want to present in front of you another idol. So the, the, the only way that it works, and this is the way that the, our, the tradition has always been, is 
a person begins that path of sojourning towards God and they find themselves a guide. They find themselves a guide. And that guide, because that guide has experience, begins to say, yes, that's a thing, or no, it's not. Because here's the other thing that's really important about mysticism, and I see it's my time to sit down. There's a thing in our tradition called prelist. Prelist. It's a term that encapsulates basically a spiritual delusion, where someone thinks they're more spiritually advanced than they actually are. And this is why, this is why the tradition exists. That's why we have objective things to to look at, to kind of compare our experience and say like, okay, what is this, right? Because remember it says in Corinthians, Paul says, behold, even the devil comes as an angel of light. See, here's the other piece that, that's missing from all this. For many people, maybe some of you, you think that fallen spirits are just a kind of like literary, anthropological, or anthropomorphical projection of our like base desires. There aren't any real fallen spirits. That's just kind of like what ancient people used to describe their envy or their anger. Okay. But anyone who's had any real mystical experience, they'll tell you that's not true. So that's another reason why sobriety and having objective points that you can say, okay, I'm wrong. Because the first step in being a mystic the first step in approaching God saying like, I could have this wrong and I could be deceived. Because most people, they just want, you know, they want half an hour of hot yoga and maybe take some DMT. Uh, now I'm, I'm a mystic. No, you're deluded. You're deluded. You're deluded. So God, you know, we're on the rock. Okay. Thank you. Forgive me. Yeah, yeah.